Well, hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on for Friday, February 2nd, 2024. So much to talk about today, including the new jobs report. The job market is booming and recovering very well. So why don't we feel good about it? And where are the jobs of the future? Also, the U.S. is considering its response to the drone attack in Iran as the dignified transfer takes place of three service members who were killed. Who's behind these attacks and what options might the U.S. have to respond? Plus, bipartisanship is not dead. I'll show you a few examples where it's alive and it's Groundhog Day. But which groundhog are you supposed to listen to? And why do we listen to them? Go to nightlightjoshua.com for more on the show and to buy some new Nightlight merch in the store. It's been a crazy morning. Oh my gosh. Or a crazy afternoon, I guess, where you are. I'm on the West Coast, so morning on the West Coast, afternoon on the East Coast. Wow, it's been super duper busy. I oh also just realized that my Nightlight Joshua lower third was off, but nightlightjoshua.com, that's the site. Last night I was doing a chat for journalism students at uh, Western Washington University, which is in Washington State, at their Society of Professional Journalists student chapter. And so I was showing them all the different kind of graphics that I use where I can turn the logo on and off and then the YouTube banner and then make the, the web address fly in and go out and just talking to them about the business. So that was kind of one of the fun things we did yesterday. And I definitely brought y'all up because you are one of, you are the reason why this is happening and why this is working, at least beginning to work. Uh, also why it's, I'm running a little bit late today. I'm sorry about that. It's been a busy, busy morning because there are so many big stories that I'm trying to kind of Put everything together. But thank you for being here. It's good to see you all today. And I'm glad to see some of you have gotten your merch. Hello, Philip. Glad to know that you are sporting your green gullible ain't sexy t-shirt today. Thank you so very much for getting one. Let me know how that is or if they need to make any changes or, or anything like that. Appreciate seeing you here. Nora, hello. I see that your grandson filled you in on the details of that anime series Cells at Work that I think it was Skylar, the writer, who mentioned yesterday. And then the 44-year-old son gave you the backstory on the Hollow Tile and Lenny Smoot. Uh, glad about that. Glad that could be, you could be part of that conversation. Also, Holly, hello. Good to see you. Glad that you're wearing your black gullible ain't sexy t-shirt. Oh, I do have the picture of that shirt. I have to pull it up. It's in my email, but I'll see if I can grab it during a break, and then I'll show you guys later. Um... I also like Holly's message. Holly writes, happy Groundhog Day. Remember, if Phil sees his shadow, it means six more weeks of delay from Judge Cannon. Mm -hmm. That is entirely possible. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Happy Friday to you. Happy Friday to you, Joseph. Good to have you on with us today. KP Koopa, welcome back. Happy Friday to you as well. Good to see everybody here today. Glad you're all having, or hope you're all having a, a good morning. I hope you're off to a very good start. Uh, it has been an interesting day in the news, but glad to see all of you who are watching on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. For those of you who may be watching on X, hello, good to see you. Please know that I cannot see your comments in the chat just because of the software that I use. So go over to YouTube. My YouTube address is nightlightjoshua, youtube.com slash at nightlightjoshua, or you can just go to nightlightjoshua.com and get the direct link to my YouTube where you can chat with all of these lovely people, share your questions, share your thoughts on some of the big stories that are making news today. I've got my TV on in the background because there are more stories that I'm watching than I could squeeze in, but this is not a newscast. This is a talk show for more news analysis. So a few things I'm watching. 
Uh, don't know if I'll be able to squeeze them all in, but I see one of them is moving right now. Bear with me one second, and I might actually be able to bring it up as we speak. Um, it has to do with the service members who were killed by a drone strike in Iran. I don't know if I can bring you the dignified transfer right now. I would love to if I can see it at the moment. But if not, we will talk about that in just a minute. So don't get ahead of me. We will get to that in just one second. But it looks like that dignified transfer is taking place or just took place at Dover Air Force Base in Dover, Delaware. So we will get to that in just a moment. But the first thing I wanted to get to was the U.S. economy and the job market. We've talked on the show a great deal about how the economy is really issue number one for voters. It's issue number one for residents of the United States at all times, whether there's an election or not. And the latest jobs reports have been pretty positive. The economy is gaining jobs. The concerns about a recession are not dead. There still could be one, but the nature of it, if it happens, is changing dramatically. And today's jobs report, which came out just this morning from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, was really quite good. According to BLS, the U.S. economy added 353,000 jobs last month, and that was way better than some of the rolling estimates. Dow Jones, which not only has that stock average, but also does economic analysis and forecasting, suggested that it would be just over half of that much. They were only forecasting 185,000 new jobs in January, and the U.S. economy added 353,000 new jobs for the month. So quite good. Unemployment was estimated by Dow Jones to be at 3.8%. It remains 3.7%. So that's also better than expected. Hourly wages, wages are basically flat. They increased 0.6%. The estimate was 0.3. So it's good, but still like a 0.6%. I mean, you're going to be excited if your boss says, good news. <laughs> I'm giving you another 60 cents on, you know, 0.6 cents on the dollar. Gee, thanks. Not much. But year over year wages are up in the U.S. 4.5%. If you look at where the jobs increased, and I'll show you where you find this, because I'm a big fan of primary sources. The place you are going to go to look for this if you want to read the data yourself is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's bls.gov. And you can see right on the homepage, payroll employment rises by 353,000 in January. Unemployment rate remains at 3.7%. So that's where the raw data are if you want to see the details behind those numbers. It will also show you breakdowns of unemployment among various demographics in the US. So unemployment for adult men is slightly, slightly higher than unemployment for adult women. For adult men, it's 3.6%, adult women, 3.2%. Unemployment for teenagers, 10.6%. That number is not, it, it, you have to read these numbers a little bit carefully because unemployment versus underemployment, people who could be employed but aren't, those are two slightly different stats. Unemployment is higher for blacks and Hispanics than for whites and Asians. Black unemployment is 5.3%. Hispanic unemployment, 5%. White unemployment, 3.4%. Asian unemployment, 2.9%. That was pretty much flat from January. 
Long-term unemployment, people who have been unemployed for more than half a year, remains at 1.3 million people. The long-term unemployed are about one out of every five unemployed people overall. And in terms of overall labor force, the number of people who could work and do work, that's also the same, 62.5%. So a lot of these numbers have either remained flat, or they've gotten better, or they are kind of, you know, they're holding steady, but they're not as bad as some had predicted. I mentioned on the show earlier this week that Jerome Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, spoke this week and said that the market is good. The economy looks good. It may be cooling off a bit, but it doesn't look like it's going to drop. And I appreciate the difference in the way that he said that. It doesn't necessarily look like things are going to get markedly worse, that they're still going to be kind of on track for what the at least the Federal Reserve and the federal government had expected, even though they may not be going gangbusters in any direction. So that at least is positive. That at least is positive. Beyond that, the report also shows that among the people who are not working, but want to be working, those people who are considered what the report calls marginally attached to the labor force, that remained flat in January, 1.7 million Americans. That means people who wanted to work, who were able to work, and who looked for work sometime in the last year, but not in the four weeks before the survey. So they're basically discouraged workers. That's, that's, or that's basically available to work. The number of discouraged work, the people who believe that there was no work, rose slightly, 452,000. So it's not a huge percentage of the workforce overall, but it's not getting any better. That number of people who are looking and people who think they won't find anything, those are, those are kind of remaining somewhat flat. President Biden put out a statement about the January jobs report. It reads, quote, America's economy is the strongest in the world. Today, we saw more proof with another month of strong wage gains and employment gains of over 350,000 in January, continuing the strong growth from last year. Our economy has created 14.8 million jobs since I took office. Unemployment has been under 4% for two full years now, and inflation has been at the pre-pandemic level of 2% over the last half year. It's great news for working families that wages, wealth, and jobs are higher now than before the pandemic. Pandemic, and I won't stop fighting to lower costs and build an economy from the middle out and bottom up. I'll continue to stand in the way of efforts by congressional Republicans to enact massive tax giveaways for the wealthy and big corporations, cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and raise costs for American families, unquote. So that is the word from President Biden issuing a statement after the jobs report came out. Obviously, it's an election year statement because he knows that these are the kinds of things that Republicans are campaigning against him and other Democrats on, not just Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, although they've been very vocal in saying that President Biden has failed the American people on the economy in their view, but also other Republicans who are going to try to take control, keep control of the House and take control of the Senate as a way of enacting deeper economic policies, particularly tax cuts. So understand why President Biden kind of put it the way that he did. Where are the jobs, though? I think a lot of people who look at these reports, and we know this, and I'm going to, I'll show you in just a second. But a number of people who look at these kinds of reports, look at them like, what 
planet are you on? <laughs> like, what country are you talking about where the economy is doing so well? And I get that. I totally get that. And I want to get into that a little bit, why there is the disconnect and where the jobs actually are. First of all, where are the jobs? Like, where is the net change for jobs the greatest? Well, that's also in the BLS data. CNBC had a cute little chart that breaks it all down. And you can see some of the industries where jobs are growing. The largest growth, the one-month net change, healthcare and social assistance, 100,000 jobs. This does not surprise me in the least. I think that very people-centered jobs are the ones that are going to grow. The jobs where you cannot yet, anyway, effectively, reliably, consistently outsource it because you need a human being to do that, particularly healthcare, that is an industry. And especially because Americans are living longer and because there is more attention being put on the inequities in healthcare to allow more people to work in industries where healthcare gaps can be closed. There's money to be made there and there's opportunity there. Healthcare and social assistance, those are jobs that are gonna be needed for the foreseeable future. So if you're looking for work, that might be something to consider. This next sector though, it's one of these catch-all names that could mean like anything or everything. Professional and business services, 74,000 jobs. What the hell are professional and business services? Well, the nice thing about the BLS website is it will define these terms for you. And on the site, it defines what professional and business services are. And it's a super sector, they call it, that is made up of a number of job sectors within it that they use to classify employment so that when they put these reports together, they know where to classify things. So professional and business services includes three sectors, professional, scientific, and technical services, which is just as vague, management of companies and enterprises, and administrative and support and waste management and remediation services. Okay. Those of us who've watched enough Sopranos hear waste management, we're like, uh-huh, that's what you do. But professional and business services does all kinds of different things. But this part, professional, scientific, technical services, a lot of these are jobs that still require people. Legal advice and representation, accounting, bookkeeping, and payroll, that is increasingly automating, but for compliance reasons, not everyone's ready to quite go there yet. Architectural services, engineering, specialized design, those are still people jobs. Computer services, those are starting to give way to AI, but not instantly. Consulting, that's definitely people work. Research, advertising, people work. Photographic services, much less now that you've got kind of a cinema quality phone camera on your iPhone. Translation and interpretation, veterinary services. I mean, there are still people-centered jobs that are growing. We still need people to do them. And I think because of the advent of AI being kind of in your phone and everywhere else, I think the way that we do those jobs is going to evolve. And as the market shapes itself or shakes itself out, the nature of that work is going to get a lot more stable. This is part of the argument that's going on right now in the media. And I'm going to do something soon. I've been compiling links forever on something about whether the media is dead. Uh, TLDR, no, it's not. It's just evolving. But I think that a lot of these jobs that are going to survive the shift in AI are going to survive because they are people-centered. 
not just because they can modernize, but because the relationship that we have built with those kinds of roles will stay strong. We don't necessarily want a machine doing legal advice, right? I don't know that I want to outsource that to a machine, at least not today. So that's going to be a human job for a while. Design, engineering, architectural work, yes, I can have AI architecture, but like, why? <laughs> How is that better? You know, if you could get Frank Lloyd Wright or the AI Frank Lloyd Wright bot, like, which would you rather have for the money? And you know they're not going to charge you that much less for the Frank Lloyd a Wright AI bot. They're going to want to make Frank Lloyd Wright money. So it's going to be there. The other sectors that made the list, retail trade, lots of work there, so much work in retail, so much. Even though some stores are closing, there's other retail work, particularly specialty malls, outlet malls, niche stores. They still need people, and they need good people. Government, there's always work in government, which often can include education, so public education. Manufacturing is a great industry to be in right now because there's a drop in people who do that work as they age out or retire from the system, and there aren't as many people being brought up behind them. So there's, there is work to be done. Also, leisure and hospitality, 11,000 new jobs. Don't be deceived by the fact that that's so far down on the list. There was a moment earlier in the pandemic recovery, we were booming in leisure and hospitality jobs. Booming. Remember earlier this week, we talked about that new Universal theme park, Epic Universe? That's partly why Universal has invested so much money in theme parks, because people want to get out and they want hospitality experiences in person. There's a fight that's coming up in the upper echelons of corporate boardroom hell that interests me, but probably does not interest you unless you are hugely interested in the media as an industry, where an activist investor by the name of Nelson Peltz is going to try to shake up the board of the Walt Disney Company, because he believes Disney has not been active enough in reorganizing the company to prepare it for its future. Translation, Disney's not profiting as much as he would like it to profit, so he wants to put more people on the board to profit it more. And one of the argument, because let's, let's be clear, these companies are making money. They are profitable. They're just not Wall Street level profitable. And one of the arguments that he makes is that Disney has underinvested and made messy investments in its theme parks, where Universal has made very targeted, very big, very clear investments and is reaping all the harvest because people want to go out. And they're willing to spend the money to go out on things they like. We're spending less on the movies, but we're spending more on theme parks. And we're still going. So these in-person jobs, they're not going away. They're shifting. They're moving. But the data we see and what's been happening over the last few years makes it clear there's, there's still work. You just got to know where to find it. It's going to be different kinds of work. A lot of it's not going to be the same kind of work that requires a particular college degree. That's a huge shift. And that's a whole other... It's a whole other conversation about like the value of your degree and did you want it and are you pleased with it and would you do things differently and would you get another degree? Like that's a whole other conversation. Actually, that's something I've been thinking about. I've been thinking very seriously and I have for years. So this is not a new like midlife crisis conversation, although it kind of is. But I've been thinking for a long time about whether I wanted to go back to college and get my master's degree. I have a bachelor's, never did the master's. I just, I got hired right out of college. And so I just kept working. But I've thought about whether or not I wanted to do a master's or even a PhD. I've thought about doing a deeper degree 
studying journalism, studying communication, studying what works in helping connect people and using that to try to advance the field and consult for businesses and try to, to, to make the levers of this move in a different way by really having some, some research and scholarship and putting knowledge behind, here's what works, here's what doesn't, go and do likewise. And also to teach, because I love teaching. But I thought about it in terms of whether an advanced degree would make a difference. I have been a journalist for 20 years, so I have master's level skills in journalism, so it wouldn't be like, learning how to write in an inverted pyramid all over again, that's crazy. But there's a whole other conversation we should have one day about the value of a college degree and whether or not college degrees still make sense, whether your degree still made sense, whether you would do it differently, et cetera. That's another conversation. One of the other things that's also on the BLS website, which I find fascinating, are the jobs that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the same people who put out the unemployment report, the jobs that they say are the fastest growing and that look like they're going to have the strongest growth rate over a 10-year span. Now, the way these numbers work is they go from median pay in 2022. That's, those are the most current numbers that have been crunched for this data set up to what looks like it's going to have the strongest growth between 2022, theoretically, and 2032. The top one on the list at the moment Wind turbine service technicians, because we're going to need them. <laughs> it's a growing business. We're going to need more wind turbines, I suppose. And BLS suspects that there's going to be more of them. They're suspecting a 45% growth rate. Now, I'm guessing that's not millions of jobs. It's probably thousands of jobs. In fact, if I click on this, it looks like, yeah, there are only, if you click on it, in this list, it said that as of 2022, there were only about 11,200 wind turbine technicians. But that's a lot of growth. And these are people who make median 57K a year. So it's not terrible money, depending on where you live in the country. You can, you know, dual income household. If one person's making 57 and the other's making kind of median, yeah, you can live off of that. Growth industry as we transition to different sources of energy. So not bad. But behind that, or actually tied with that for growth, nurse practitioners, we need nurses so bad, so bad in this country. We are dramatically understaffed for nurses, especially, again, as Americans age and use the healthcare system a lot more as people go to more places like CVS for their primary care. My new primary care is at CVS. So it's going to grow one way or the other, and it's going to grow pretty quickly. $121,610 is the median pay as of 2022 for an NP. Data scientists, statisticians, info security analysts, that's definitely going to be growing as there are more cyber threats. Medical and health services managers, epidemiologists, interesting. Physicians assistants who can make $126K a year. So a lot of these are in-person jobs, physical therapist assistants, occupational therapy assistants, actuaries, Solar photovoltaic installers. Again, there are not many. The one on this list that I find very, very suspect. Taxi drivers. What? America needs taxi drivers? They're forecasting a 21% increase in taxi drivers who make median $30,670 per year. According to BLS, there are about 300 and just under 396,000 taxi drivers in the U.S., as of 2022, I'm just gonna, 
I'm going to call BS on the BLS on this one. Don't become a taxi driver. If you know anything about the business, the cost of the medallion that it requires, basically the license that allows you to be a taxi driver, is essentially a form of indentured servitude. And between the rise of Lyft and Uber and other similar services and the fact that self-driving vehicles are no longer theoretical, that industry is going to vaporize in the next, I'd say, five to 10 years. So don't be a taxi driver. (laughs) No shame in being a taxi driver. I'm not knocking it. But don't be a taxi driver (laughs) and don't be a Lyft driver. Or if you're going to drive for Lyft and Uber, do it right now. Because that industry is going to vaporize. There are self-driving, I wonder if I can find the picture. Hold on just one second. It was a few, was it Lyft or Uber? It was a few weeks ago here in Vegas. Maybe it was Lyft. I know I took a picture of it. Where I was driving and saw, was this it? And saw a self-driving Uber, I think it was, and it had a little placard on the side. I know those of you listening on the podcast are like, get on with that. I can't see it anyway. Give me just a second. And it had a little placard on the side that said that it was a self-driving Uber. And it was pretty clear that this was a, this was a, (laughs) this was a ghost cat. Let me see if I can find it. Here we go. Just a minute. There we go. It was a Hyundai Ionic vehicle. That was a self-driving vehicle. And it had an Uber sticker on the side. I wonder if I can enlarge this and you can see it. Give me just one second. There it is. So there's the picture. I think, yeah. It was at Las Vegas Boulevard in Russell, which is near the bottom of the strip. And it was a self-driving car. There you see it. It was a Hyundai Ionic 5 driverless vehicle. And you can kind of see on the side, just barely, if I can enlarge the image, yep. Just barely over here, you can see the Uber logo right here on the side. So this is a self-driving Uber that was being tested around Las Vegas, driving down the Las Vegas Strip. This is, for those who don't know Vegas, this is as you're coming south off the Strip. So this below the Mandalay Bay, which is the bottom of the Strip, right near the airport. And then going further down, you get towards Town Square and the future Brightline Station. And this vehicle was on the road, tested. This was back in September, September 29th, the picture is dated. So those jobs are gone. (laughs) Those jobs are gone and they are not ever, ever, ever coming back. So don't be a taxi driver. That's what the job picture looks like right now. It's not that bad, except it doesn't feel that good. We are not excited about the jobs picture right now, but why aren't we? Part of it is the economic malaise, for sure, that some people are feeling. But there's also a few more factors that research has shown are weighing on our sentiment of the job market. That also affects President Biden and our political views on how the economy is running right now. I'll show you some of those survey data when we come back. Also, I'll tell you about one particular job. I saw this in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago that pays or could pay $400,000 a year without a college degree. And it is in one of the most disrespected and not chic workplaces in the entire country. I will show you that as well 
Also, the Dignified Transfer Ceremony, the video of that is just being released. I'm going to see if I can turn that around for you. We'll talk more about America's strategy towards Iran and who might be behind the drone attack. Also, what is Iran saying about the drone attack? Why would you attack U.S. service members knowing that we are going to retaliate? We'll have some of the latest that is coming from Iran's Revolutionary Guard and more on the situation there when we come back. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Good to have you with us today. Remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com to find all the links to follow the show's podcast, which is now available on Spotify, increasingly available, and soon you'll be able to do a premium membership there just as you can on Apple Podcasts. Also, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, Nightlight Joshua, and click the notification bell, or I guess as they say on YouTube, smash that like button and smash the notification bell. Just don't break the bell because you need the bell to get notifications of when I'm on. So respectfully click the notification bell and it will respect you back. Also, you can buy your Gullible Ain't Sexy t-shirt and Nightlight merch in the online merch store. Put a few dollars in the online tip jar. If you see something on the show that you like, you can also contact me through that form. All of the links for that are at nightlightjoshua.com. Also good to see everyone here online. Hello, Skylar. Good to see you. Welcome. Good to see you here on the on the chat. And I and also for those of you who are watching on X, please know that you can jump over to Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch, particularly on YouTube where we've got a lovely chat going on. You can go over to Nightlight Joshua on YouTube and find us there. Let me get back to our conversation about the economy. Talk to you about some of the jobs that are in demand. We know that the economic indicators look better than they did look, but they don't feel better. Why is that? Well, I think we kind of have a sense of that. And it's not just in our heads that they don't necessarily feel better. Pew Research's latest polling on the economy show that we are actually more upbeat than we had been. We are not as dour about the economy as we had been. If you look at the numbers from Pew Research, the percentage of Americans who say that the economic conditions in the country today are excellent or good shift by party. And if you look at the numbers, the shift is pretty clear. From 2017, when Donald Trump became president, Republican economic perception through the roof, shot up right up until COVID. And then everyone's perceptions tanked at COVID, which is expected, but through the roof. Democrats' perceptions tanked. Independents tracked more with Republicans. This is something President Biden's going to have to be mindful of in terms of making the economic argument to non-Republican, non-Democratic voters, that independents have tracked with Republicans, in, at least in previous years. And Democrats, of course, were not digging what Donald Trump was putting down, and so their views were much lower. But after Joe Biden becomes president in 2021, the views aligned. There was a significant alignment in people's views of the economy. Then when economic perceptions dropped, they dropped for everyone. They just dropped farther for Republicans. When they rose again around 2022, they rose for everyone. They just rose by roughly the same slope. 
It's just Democrats' perceptions remained higher. Republicans' perceptions remained lower. Independents remained in the middle. They slid in mid-2022 for everyone. They rose in 23 for everyone, dropped, and then rose again. But as we get closer to 2024, you can see Democrats' perceptions rose at a sharper incline than Republicans or independents, but they all went up. So I feel like we are now at a place where the economic perception of the market is not just driven by partisanship. Yes, Democrats feel happier under a Democratic president and Republicans feel happier under a Republican president. Obviously, that's to be expected, but it's not like the Republicans are just gonna dump on Joe Biden no matter what. Based on the Pew report, they're kind of rising and falling very much in concert with one another. Remarkably so. Nothing like what they did during the Trump administration. That we were in our feelings the whole time. Add to that that the Associated Press's numbers track very much the same way that our economic perceptions, if you just look at the last few years, there are partisan differences for sure. But the Democratic figures and the Republican figures and then the overall figures track very similarly. They're not that weird kind of spaghetti model where they're all over the place, where Republicans see one universe and Democrats see another and independents are like, I think I agree with the GOP. This is not that. So I think when we talk about the perceptions and when Democrats are trying to make the case to the rest of the country now, they need to make the case to everyone because this isn't a fluke. There is a pattern of very consistent poll results and very consistent perceptions that proportionally track across party lines. Does that make sense? So I don't view this the same way as like, well, Republicans are never gonna go for Joe Biden. Well, no, independents have kind of agreed with Republicans in the last few years about the economy. And I think the president, if he wants to get reelected, and if Democrats wanna make their case for Joe Biden and for giving Democrats control, they need to respect that lack of variance between partisan voters when it comes to the economy. But that's only one factor. There's also just the fact that we don't feel like we're doing better. That, you know, what's that line from the movie Network? A dollar buys a nickel's worth. It's that perception that we're working our asses off and we're just not getting farther. I feel so grateful that I am able to do this right now, that you and I are able to spend this time but make, make no mistake, I was able to burn a lot of savings to do this because I believe in it. I have gone in the hole to put this together. But I lucked out, right? I had a network news job, paid me a lot of money. I was able to sock away a ton of money that was just been able to float me for the last two years, almost two years now, to be able to do this work since NBC let me go. Well, almost a year and a half. So that has been an enormous blessing enormous. And I know that if I did not have that, then this is not, this probably would not be happening. You and I would not be talking because how the hell would I afford it? And even now it's hard, but I am constantly mindful of the fact that I am super fortunate to be able to do this. And if I was not in this particular line Having had the path I had, made the decisions I made, none of this would be possible right now. And I would probably be working for someone else, kind of as a voice in the chorus of the mainstream media. 
and that would suck. <laughs> or maybe I'd be working on my PhD right now. I don't know. But it it would be a different story. So it's 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 clear that we don't feel the liberty that should come from being in the land of opportunity with all the opportunities and all you need to do is just dream and work hard and you too can succeed because you are an American. No, it doesn't look like that anymore. On top of that, the prospect of finding something new based on some surveys is also just enough to set your teeth on edge. Here's a survey from a group called Insight Global, which does employment staffing. And they did a survey last August that showed that many unemployed Americans are struggling from just the burnout of looking for a job. That's part of the problem. According to Insight Global, this was a survey that was done last July, among 501 recently unemployed adults who are actively looking for employment. 55% of them say that they had been searching for a new job so long that they were completely burnt out from looking for work. Recently unemployed, and again, this was recently as of last July when the survey was conducted, recently unemployed workers who had been full-time say that on average, they applied to around 30 jobs, three zero, 30 jobs, and got, on average, four callbacks or responses. Four for applying to 30. Gen Z, the most burned out. 66% of unemployed Gen Zers, according to this survey, say they had looked for a job so long that they are burnt out from looking. That's the highest percentage of any generational group. Now, to an extent, I don't read too much into that because, I mean, let's, let's be real. When you're young and you're new to the workforce, you want to get a job and you're nervous about it. Like, I get that. I found that once I had a job, and once I was used to being between jobs, being between jobs didn't feel so terrible. It didn't feel good, but I didn't feel like, oh my God, I'm falling off a cliff because I was able to have the benefit of experience of, okay, that was hard, but I made it through that. I did it before and I can do it again. And it didn't feel quite so terrifying to be unemployed. So to an extent, the Gen Z statistic doesn't tell me much just in terms of understanding that when you're a younger worker, you're probably going to be much more freaked out by the prospect of being unemployed. Beyond that, though, the survey also showed a lot of people's views on what it's like to be unemployed and how you live during that period. 43% from this survey of recently unemployed workers say they felt fine living at home with their parents. Had no problem with it, felt no shame in it. I had to do that myself between jobs when I left uh, WLRN and before I, in Miami and before I got hired at KQED in San Francisco. I moved back home. I moved back home while I worked there because I couldn't afford to remain in Fort Lauderdale on my own. I needed to move back home with my family in Palm Beach County. So I have, I've been through that. I don't want to do that again. I like my independence, but I've, I've done it. 43% of recently unemployed full-time workers said, I think this is a huge shift, said they would rather create an Etsy business or thrift flip than send out another blast of resumes. Yeah, that's kind of what I did. This is like, this is Etsy for journalists, basically. It's like the thing, I bought a 4K flat screen and I got a camera and I, I bought a stream deck, which is a, a switcher. It's this thing right here that I used, push the buttons and it, I pushed, I'll show you. And I'll push this little button up here and 
it brings up that screen. And then I push this button and it brings me back. So I would much rather do that than try to fall back into the mainstream that I know doesn't actually satisfy me. I totally get that. Also, the survey showed more than a third of recently unemployed full-timers said they'd rather drive for a delivery or rideshare service than send out another blast of resumes. Okay, I mean, that, and hey, some people do a bit of both. And then 44% of Gen Zers admit that they would rather get a sugar daddy or sugar mommy than send out another blast of resumes. Girl, look, no, just no. Just no, 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 just no, no. This is, the, you know what, L let, me, let me be your news daddy for a minute. No, <laughs> absolutely not. No, no. Do you know how not interested I would be if some cute little 22-year-old something sidled up next to me and was like, you know, oh, this is a nice, this is a nice car you have. How are the lease payments going? I would be like, get thee behind me, Satan. I don't want to hear nothing. Get out of here. I would, I would, I would, I would smack him. I would smack him in an unsexy way. Put it like that. That would not be happening. No, absolutely not. Now, in defense of Gen Z, I think that there is a different conversation going on between young adults about how your job speaks to your value as a person. I think there's a different conversation about how your job speaks to the worth of your life and whether or not you have to be a nine to five office worker who is part of American industry in order to feel like a whole human being, to feel like an adult. That's a totally healthy conversation. I get that. And I don't think that you have to be a dual income household necessarily. If one person has a strong income and the other person is like, I wanna spend some time studying and making art and understanding myself, great. If you have the means to do that, fine. So to an extent, I don't think that this statistic is necessarily a sign of laziness. However, <laughs> that's a larger conversation you got to have, whatever this little Gen Zer is, who's like, um, I just wanna be on TikTok. Can you like pay my rent for the next seven years so that I can learn to, no. <sighs> that's another conversation, anyway. Let me look a little further and then we will move on from the job market, actually, um, yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> actually, oh, Skylar. Skylar is trouble as always. Skylar, the writer, actually has two worthwhile comments. Skylar wrote, if the American dream was as real as it's marketed to be, OnlyFans wouldn't have half of its freelance workforce. You think you're kidding. Skylar, I think you're, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. I agree with that. I think and I know, I know a number of guys who do OnlyFans or just for fans or for my fans or whatever site. And a number of them who started, one of the factors in their thought process, not necessarily the factor, but one of the factors is that they were sick of trying to be a, a worker bee. They were tired of it. They had been sold what they believed was a bill of goods about education, getting a college degree, joining the workforce and achieving the quote unquote American dream. And it either didn't work out for them, worked out very differently than they thought in ways that they could not stomach, or the glitter rubbed off and they realized that it just wasn't what it was cracked up to be, that it was a means of control rather than a means of guidance. And they felt burned by that. And they thought, you know what? Screw you. 
I'm not afraid of doing this anymore because nothing you say is going to sway my actions anymore, and I'll prove it to you. That's another conversation. And that's why I think I'm so fascinated by the OnlyFans phenomenon, not just because of what it means as a means of sexual expression, but that's another conversation too, but about the economy story behind OnlyFans. I mean, Denise Richards' daughter, Denise Richards, that Denise Richards, the actress, the model, uh, the one who was in one of my favorite movies, Drop Dead Gorgeous, and one of my other favorite movies, Starship Troopers, but we'll talk about that later. Her daughter got on OnlyFans, and Denise Richards was like, go ahead, sweetie, I support you. And then Denise Richards was like, I think I'll do an OnlyFans too. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> but that's the world we're in. And I think that whole conversation is worth having. That whole discussion is worth having. And then Skylar the writer gets silly and writes, to the person who offered to make me a sugar baby back in college, you still hiring? Girl. Don't you LOL times are hard me, young lady. No, no. No, this is me. <laughs> I don't mean to sound like someone hitting a dog with a rolled up newspaper, but no, <laughs> absolutely not, young lady. You, you behave yourself. You, no daughter of mine. Before we move on from this, I do want to show you two articles I saw about where the jobs are or where they're moving. Again, these are predictions, projections. You never know what the market's going to do, but I thought these were interesting. We talk a lot about white collar jobs and blue collar jobs. There was a piece in Forbes just yesterday about the rise of gray collar jobs and the value and opportunities that are available in those. They're kind of somewhere between white collar and blue collar. It's an article written by Jack Kelly, who is a senior contributor to Forbes, and he describes gray collar jobs as jobs that intersect between the traditional segments of blue and white collar. These hybrid roles combine aspects of both hands-on physical labor, blue collar, often involving the operation of tools, machinery, or equipment, and technical, <coughs> technical skills or knowledge, white collar. Gray collar workers are highly skilled or specialized and often well compensated in industries like technology, healthcare, and service or hospitality. Among the gray collar jobs that this article lists, Airline pilots, which can be challenging. It's a unionized workforce. They have often had issues with the airlines lately, as have flight attendants. But airline pilots, there is a need for them. You typically need a bachelor's degree, some experience as a pilot, and you have to meet FAA requirements. Registered nurses, we talked a lot about the need for nurses. Lab technicians, teachers, there is gigantic demand for teachers, but also a very tough workforce to be part of. Chefs. Huge demand for professional cooks. Huge. There is not one rest. If you are, look, look, if you're a chef, if you are, have completed a culinary program, if you have your safe cert training for, you know, uh, for, for keeping a kitchen sanitary and you are looking for work, come to Las Vegas. There is work for you. There are so many places here that are starving for good chefs. So many, not just on the Strip, not just on Fremont Street, but everywhere. There is work for you if you can cook. And if you can work in a kitchen, come to Vegas. It's a beautiful place. There's no state income tax. There's tons to do. It's handy to California. You can fly anywhere from the airport. Come to Las Vegas. We need you. Other jobs, electricians. Big need for electricians. You need a high school diploma and then a paid apprenticeship program, paid apprenticeship. Apprenticeship can be four or five years. You get a licensure from the state, but they pay you to learn to be an electrician. 
And there's always going to need to be electricians. Plumbers, I think, are also going to be needed. Police officers. There's a significant need for police officers. And that includes highway patrol officers and state troopers, and as well as school resource officers. Firefighters. Significant need for firefighters. Flight attendants. I know a number of people who have recently become flight attendants. Also paralegals. There's work. There's lots of work. And a number of these professions can pay six figures in not that much time. And they're not going to be outsourced or automated out of existence anytime soon. How eager would you be to be on a flight that was flown by AI? Go on, I'll wait. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely not. One more thing, and then I will move on from this, and we will talk about other things on the other side of the break. I told you that there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal about a $400,000 a year job that does not require a college degree. This $400,000 a year job, as soon as I saw it, I was like, what? And then I thought about it, and I was like, yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And it is one of the reasons why I get really annoyed with people who look down on jobs at places like, you know, Denny's or Walmart or whatever, these kind of like low middle American fast food, like th these are jobs, all right? These are people who didn't ask to do a job you would, you know, turn your nose up at. They're trying to feed their families. They're trying to get by on a day-to-day -day basis, show some respect. But $400,000 job that does not require a college degree. Wall Street Journal had a piece on this just a few days ago. Walmart store managers. Walmart. How do you make 400K a year at Walmart? Because they are increasing the bonuses and stock awards to their annual pay packages. The best ones can make 400K a year or more. The way that the Wall Street Journal piece puts it is like this. The retail giant has thousands of store managers who act as mid-level executives. Each can often oversee a store with 350 workers and $100 million in annual revenue. Many start as clerks and climb the ranks without college degrees. Store managers will now be able to earn up to $20,000 in annual stock grants and an up to 200% bonus each year. 200%. The average base salary for a Walmart store manager is around $128,000. That means a successful manager of a large Walmart store can earn up to $404,000 a year in total compensation. That is crazy. Now, granted, the journal asked Walmart, how many managers get their full bonus each year? The company wouldn't answer that question, which I understand. But it's also a job that requires some additional skills now that it didn't in the past. For example, the chief executive of Walmart US said that these days store managers are responsible for e-commerce orders. You know, when you order on walmart.com, pull up into a parking space, they drop it off in your car and you go, which by the way, is one of the best features of retail shopping today. I use my app to shop at Target and at my Smith's grocery store all the time. I rarely walk into the stores anymore, and the service is fantastic. They bring it up, you scan a little boop, and they put it in your trunk, and you take off. It's wonderful. But that is now part of the job, and they are trying to recruit people 
to do these jobs more steadily because according to the journal piece, turnover has stabilized. It's not that hard to keep people going like it was during the pandemic. They just raised the average pay from 117,000 to 128,000. Used to be you could win a, get a bonus of 150%. They bumped it up to 200%. And this is for people who run the big stores, the super centers. But still, like you can make a lot of money without a college degree in this country. I think that's also why there's such a demand for people to do things like influencers. I think there's a connection there where today's generations, to their credit, are asking more questions about why do I have to go to college to have a career? You don't. You have to go to college to have some careers, but you don't have to go to college to be a worthy member of the economy. And I think this is kind of a healthy shift in our society, away from saying grade school, college job, as opposed to grade school, choose, and giving young people, and giving people in their second chapter of their lives, in their next chapter, third, fourth, the opportunity to write those chapters themselves. I think that's healthy. And I think the more that we're able to do that, then the more this kind of malaise over the economy is going to feel very different, and the more we're going to be able to, to take a better sense of ownership of the economy we live in. Instead of, why aren't the jobs falling from the sky? Maybe they don't have to. Maybe you can grow them yourself. Not necessarily as a farmer, but as kind of a job originator for yourself. You don't have to be dependent on someone else in the economy, unless you choose to. But it's more of a choice, as opposed to an expectation. So that's where things stand right now with the job market. Let me just take a quick look at some of your comments. I see LA on the chat. Hello, LA. I don't believe I've seen you on the chat before. Welcome. Good to see you. LA writes on YouTube, there have also been conversations about new collar jobs. However, it's not always clear what education is truly required for those positions. For example, certain online certificates, etc. Very true. I have even encountered this with some people who I knew who live and work in Silicon Valley, because there are a lot of like, you know, get certified to do this Microsoft database thing or get certified for Google SEO or Google AdWords. And there are places where you can get the certification either from Microsoft, Google, whomever, or from someone else who offers the training. And it's questionable as to how useful it is and how often you can get hired with that. I even know people with CS degrees, computer science degrees, who are struggling to find work right now. So I think a lot of these things, and I think a lot of the difficulty in finding work has kind of soured people on some of these paths. And on top of that, AI is automating a lot of these jobs out of existence. So a lot of the people who got these certifications are writing the programs and doing the work that is destroying their very own jobs. It's goofy. It is demented. Yeah. It's, it's very, very strange. Oh, Joseph, you are trouble. Joseph wrote on YouTube, I wouldn't be surprised if we never saw Denise Richards again. New OnlyFans alert. See, that's what, but hey, when was the last time you thought of Denise Richards before I brought her up? Gone, I'll wait. Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And Skylar, I do like your comment. While we're at it, there is no such thing as unskilled labor. Damn right. And you know another term? Oh, excuse me. 
Let me go back. Uh, sorry, Skylar also wrote, growing up, society said being a garbage man or plumber was something less than. Then I graduated with all that debt just to find out they were making 80K out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm glad that we have shifted away from that point of view. I'm glad that, you know, people have stopped looking at sanitation workers, for example. I don't think, at least I don't hear people like, oh, my God, a garbage man. Like, no, we need you. <laughs> we absolutely need you. You're the most important person in the city. You're more important than the mayor. If you're the person who picks up the trash, we absolutely love you. Absolutely. Oh, Holly, interesting. Holly writes, I'm taking a Google Cloud Services certification program next month being offered for free specifically to women. That is so cool. Good for you. Tell me how that goes. I, I really am interested to know what that is like and where you go with that. Uh, you know how to reach me on email or just comment in the chat later on as it, as it progresses. I would be interested, Holly, in knowing how the course goes, whether it was worth your time, whether the instructor was good, what you do with it later on. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Thank you all for, for being part of this part of the chat. We're going to move on from here, but I, I'm fascinated by the shift in the job market. We assign so much of who we are to the work that we do. And I think as our country kind of figures out what it's going to be growing up and going forward, that is definitely going to be a bigger part of the conversation. And when we say the economy, how's the economy look? Do you mean the stock market? Do you mean the job market? Do you mean the prices at the supermarket? They're not the same thing. We rarely have an apples to apples conversation about the economy in this country because we're looking at all these different economies. Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve says, things are looking great. This is a good economy. And then you know, Jerome Powell Jr., who's shopping at his local Piggly Wiggly, is like, what country are you living in? And nobody is kind of having the same conversation. So be careful before you use that word economy. Because we're not all living in the same economy or spending on the same things or getting money the same way. I think that's part of the disconnect in how we talk about it. But it's a disconnect that doesn't have to persist if we just, I think, listen more than we talk and make sure that we're both speaking the same language. When we come back, we'll talk about Iran. The dignified transfer ceremony has concluded at Dover Air Force Base. President Biden says that he has decided on his response to this Iranian drone attack. And by some reports, this was indeed a drone made in and by Iran. So what happened? What are the U.S.'s options? What is Iran saying about this? Also, the work that it takes to do a dignified transfer is pretty formidable. What happens when a service member dies overseas? The work is much more painstaking than you might think, including the work of returning their personal effects to their families. I'll show you what that work is like when we come back. Welcome back. Good to have you with us today. I want to move forward and talk a bit about the situation in Iran. Here is some video that I just found. This is video from uh, CBS News, which was one of the news organizations that covered this dignified transfer ceremony. This is the ceremony for the service members who were killed in Iran on duty. And again, this is video from CBS News's live stream from the stream that just ended actually. Of the ceremony at Dover 
Air Force Base in Dover, Delaware. These were three soldiers who were killed by a drone attack, and this is a ceremony that the president and presidents have to attend rather frequently as part of their presidency, hopefully not too frequently. But this was one of the things that the president said he was going to be a part of after meeting with the families of the three service members. I'll tell you a bit more about them in just a moment. And this is not really the end of a process. This is kind of an interim step within the process of the military attending, the uh, returning of the bodies of the service members. There you can see the military honor guard at Dover Air Force Base walking to the military carrier that carries the three bodies of the service members. There's Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady. To her right on the shot is Secretary Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, and there again is the president in Dover. So the work of doing this is not only somber, but it's also rather difficult. It takes a tremendous array of people to put together this kind of a military procedure. And one of the things that I wanted to get to in this was what it takes to do that, what it takes to do that work. I'll get to that in just one second, but I I did want to kind of lay out what happened, who these people are, and then where this goes from here. First of all, let me just get, let me begin with the names of the service members. They were killed on January 29th in an Iranian drone strike. They were Staff Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, who's 46 years old, all from the state of Georgia. He's from Carrollton, Georgia. Sergeant Kennedy LaDon Sanders, who was 24, she's from Waycross, Georgia. And Sergeant Brianna Alexandria Moffitt, who was 23 from Savannah, Georgia. They died, excuse me, January 28th in an attack in Jordan. There was an unmanned aerial system, as they call it in the military, a drone, basically, that hit housing units they were in. So they weren't on the battlefield, they weren't on patrol, they were in container housing units and killed the three of them. They were part of the 718th Engineer Company, which is stationed at Fort Moore, Georgia. Here you can see pictures of the three of them from military.com. The work of bringing home service members is difficult, for sure. But one of the things that is also remarkable is the military-civilian connection that happens when this work is done. There's a page with the Air Force Mortuary Affairs Operations Department. I wonder if you knew that the Air Force had such a department that talks about the work that has to happen to make a dignified transfer to Dover Air Force Base. And it explains what a dignified transfer is. This is something that I did not ever really fully understand or understand more until I got to DC and began to kind of think more about all this military uh, procedure and pageantry and protocol. Dignified transfer, and this is how the Air Force explains it, it's simply the process of moving the remains of fallen military members to a waiting vehicle. Then they are moved to a facility, a mortuary facility at Dover Air Force Base. It's not really a ceremony per se, at least that's not how the Air Force itself describes it. It's a movement of the transfer case. A ceremony, I think if we were gonna call it a military ceremony, would involve military dress uniforms. This does not involve that. These are duty uniforms, as opposed to like the formal dress uniforms for a ceremony in the military. Then there's a carry team, 
formative military personnel from whatever service the service members were in. So these were Army reservists, and so the Army Reserve would provide uh, service members to be part of the dignified transfer. Every military service member who dies in the theater of operation, who dies on duty for their country, gets a dignified transfer, all of them. And a senior ranking officer from that branch presides over the dignified transfer. So they're returned to Dover Air Force Base as quickly as possible. Usually there's a stop in Rammstein Air Force Base in Germany, which is a base that is an American base that the German government allows the US government to operate. The goal is to get them back as quickly as possible. Then it is transferred from the aircraft to a transfer vehicle, then moves to the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, prepared for their final resting place, whatever memorial services are deemed appropriate. And as of 2009, the press is allowed to cover these with permission from the family and only to cover personnel who die in the line of duty who are supporting current military operations. But ultimately, it is up to both the military and especially the family involved. We cannot cover them all, and we do not cover them all. That's kind of the basics of how the ceremony works. There's also the work of making sure that the personal effects of the fallen service member get back to their families, whatever was in their footlockers or on their person or any keepsakes that they might have had, that those get back to the families as appropriate. How is that work done? What is it like to be responsible for those personal effects? There is a video on the Pentagon's website that lays out the people who work on this team. I want to show it to you now. And again, to be clear, this is a video from the Department of Defense. So this is a military promotional video, as it were, kind of PR video to show what this team does. But I think it's worth seeing just to kind of understand at least the perspective of the Pentagon and the kind of work that goes into that. Here is the video from the Department of Defense about the people who work to secure the personal effects of fallen service members. Our operation, we date back to September 11, 2001, when two Army Quartermaster Companies were activated to respond to the Pentagon attacks. Uh, those two Quartermaster Companies were tasked to recover the remains and the personal effects of the fallen at the Pentagon. From there, we moved to Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland, and then eventually in 2000, 2011, uh, we moved here to this facility. The main mission of the Joint Personal Effects Depot is to receive, inventory, safeguard, and return the personal effects of fallen service members to their families. We mainly process the personal effects of service members who have paid the ultimate price overseas in theaters of operations. This has been a life-changing assignment for me. And one of my old coworkers said it best, is you don't often get an opportunity to work in a place of honor. And that is all we do here. Our motto here is to honor the fallen and care for their loved ones. And we live that mantra every day. Every case that comes through, we look at it with new eyes. Being able to take care of that service member in a completely different way than any of us are used to, uh, it has truly been life-changing because we're supporting a family in what it could potentially be one of the hardest moments of their life. 
So if whatever we can do here to help them come to closure, we, we take pride in that. That's from the Department of Defense in terms of the work that happens to support the families of fallen service members. And it is, it's hard work to do. Sarah, I see your comments on YouTube. Sarah writes, Navy brat here, squid kid. This is the saddest thing. Yeah, I hear that for sure, for sure. But it also kind of cements why there's so much pressure on the president to figure out what the proper response to this is. But it is, it's sad work, but it's honorable work. And you can tell that the people who do this work take a tremendous amount of pride in what they do. So where does this go from here? There are lots of write-ups about this, and I wanna be clear, we don't know what the US is gonna do. We probably shouldn't know because military tactics should probably not be discussed very much openly. And so we aren't gonna find out what has happened until probably after it has occurred, perhaps long after it has occurred or, or not instantaneously. There may be reports out of the region when it happens, they're gonna to need to be corroborated, but it's, it's going to be, I suspect, something that is not boots on the ground and that's gonna be rather targeted. There's a write-up from Bloomberg. There, well, there are many write-ups on this. There's a few that I'll show you. And I don't wanna get too deep into this because it is a bit speculative and I don't wanna to deal too much in speculation, just in context. There is a write-up from Bloomberg about the kinds of options that might be contemplated. This came out soon after the attack. It does, it is useful I think in part because it quotes uh, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham who was rather, who is rather hawkish and his response was pretty direct. Hit Iran now, hit them hard. That's what Senator Lindsey Graham said. That I can almost assure you is not going to happen. The odds of the United States attacking a nuclear power like Iran or a budding nuclear power like Iran are probably slim to none and slim just left a room. That is not gonna occur. Partly because that would just inflame the region even further. I mean, Iran and Israel are not that far apart geographically. So the odds of that happening seem incredibly low. One of the people that Bloomberg spoke to is Susan DiMaggio, who was a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and she sees it the same way. She says the most likely scenario is hitting some kind of Iranian assets that are not in Iran, but that Iran supports. A lot has been said over the last few months and years in particular, but particularly because it's an election season, about the impact of China, Russia, and Iran on U.S. interests, our three primary adversaries. North Korea, I don't really put in that number. They are absolutely an adversary, but not in the same kind of way that we have active threats from major powers that have allies beyond their own borders. China, Russia, and Iran meet that bill. And so Suzanne DiMaggio says, quote, a direct attack on Iranian territory runs the high risk of igniting an expanded war by design or by accident, unquote. Very true. She also notes that there are hostage negotiations and ceasefire negotiations with Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza, and that could make this a whole lot harder. And we know that Hamas and Iran share common interests and that Hamas has gotten some support from people who are aligned with Iran. But there are other places where an attack might occur, other places where Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps are deployed. According to the Bloomberg write-up, Syria, Iraq, 
Yemen. There are a few other off, few other options there. And there are plenty of places where in the world that might occur. But again, the US government has been very cagey about it. They said, we will respond at a time and a place and manner of our choosing. The president figures that out. We're not going to talk about that, which makes sense. The little that we do more or less know is that there will probably be some kind of targeted strikes. The latest reporting from CBS News as passed on to the BBC, so they're both kind of citing the same reporting, is that it looks like there would be targeted strikes against Iranian assets in Syria and Iraq. That's kind of what the, the reporting, at least what officials told CBS News, might look like and that that could take place over the span of a few days, not necessarily one huge bombardment. Time of day, weather conditions will determine when they're attacked, how they're attacked, and so on. The US, in terms of who did this, the US is blaming a group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq. We'll get to them in just a second. And according to the reporting that has come out from the BBC and CBS, the Islamic Resistance in Iraq is believed to have a number of militias that Iran funded and armed and trained, and that they are responsible for the attack. Iran has denied any role in the attack. They continue to insist that they do not want war, but the US is clear that they don't really buy that. One of the latest updates on this, which comes just in the last few days, is from the Iranian, Iran's Revolutionary Guard. On Wednesday, you see this gentleman who is uh, Hossein Salami, who's the head of Iran's Revolutionary Guards. Just on Wednesday, according to the New York Times, he said that Tehran, the capital of Iran, was not looking for war. Well, if they're not looking for war, then what are they looking for? Iran continues to try to frustrate Western influence in the region. They have made it very clear that they are not fans of America. Those death to America chants that you see sometimes in propaganda footage from Tehran, they're not all staged. There is a core of the Iranian people who do not want America to thrive, have influence, exist. That is partly the, that is largely the rhetoric, which is also wrapped up in kind of a very hardline view of Islam behind the building up of Iran as a nuclear power, that if we have nuclear weapons, the world has to take us seriously. To an extent, that is absolutely correct. That's why the Iran nuclear deal happened, that joint deal, which former President Trump yanked the US out of that has since been kind of hamstrung in a significant way and has made it harder for the UN and for the West to keep an eye on what Iran is doing with nuclear weapons. Now, to be clear, no one has suggested that Iran is gonna fire off a nuke as a result of this. We don't even know if Iran has one that would work. A nuclear weapon is not just a matter of packing a shell with nuclear materials and throwing it and it goes boom. It is way more sophisticated than that. And whether or not Iran has enriched enough uranium, figured out a detonation system, built a warhead, attached it to some kind of de delivery device like a rocket, and then figured out how to make all the timing work, that's a much larger process. And there are other things we would be able to see happening, including from satellite images, that would indicate Iran's progress for doing something like that, presuming that it's got some kind of above-ground infrastructure. So this is not, oh my God, we have to prevent nuclear war with Iran. We're not at that point yet. We may be at that point, at some point, 
But the idea that we're there today, not necessarily. The larger issue is that because, and I'll show you on a map, maps always help. Because Iran is a major player in the region, in a couple of theaters of conflict right now, that it could destabilize things even further. Here is a map of the region. Here is, let's just start with Israel. Here's Israel. To the west of Israel is the Mediterranean. South of Israel, Egypt. East of Israel, Jordan. If you keep going east past Jordan, you hit Saudi Arabia and Iraq, and then beyond that is Iran. So Iran is a player in the region in a number of ways. Iraq, Syria, Lebanon is just north of Israel. Hezbollah is based in Lebanon. They have been attacking from Israel's north into Israel. Hezbollah is funded by Iran. You've got Jordan, Saudi Arabia. They're trying to be level heads in the region. Iran doesn't like that. Iran and Saudi Arabia have drama because Iran is a Shiite Muslim country. Saudi Arabia is a Sunni Muslim country. So there is sectarian tension between the two of them. Iran also borders on the Persian Gulf, which is one of the major transit routes around the world for oil in this region, and also just for trade in general. Iran is not far from Yemen, which is where we've been talking about Houthi rebels that have been attacking trade ships in and around the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, and have had to go all the way underneath the Horn of Africa just to get away from all of this nonsense up here. So you can see why Iran, just geographically, just on the map, is worth paying attention to, and why the U.S. does not want to do anything that would make Iran's head pop up and try to do something in this situation with Israel, with what's happening in Yemen, with the ongoing tensions in the region, or anything else. They're trying to keep Iran as quiet as possible, which makes a hell of a lot of sense. So who did this? There's a great primer about this in a website called The Conversation, which I love. It's academic articles written by university scholars about issues in the news, usually from kind of a backgrounding perspective, which I find really useful. And there's one about this drone attack. It's by Sarah Harmouche from American University in Washington. She is working on her PhD at the School of Public Affairs. And it's a good interesting primer on what's happening there. So the group that claimed responsibility, Islamic resistance in Iraq, they are not one single group, as we saw in the Bloomberg write-up. It's this kind of umbrella group that's got a bunch of militias that sort of claim to be part of it. They sort of claim that set in terms of the gang that they roll with. Islamic resistance in Iraq includes, oh, let me go back to the New York Times right up. As I read down a little further, just going back to the New York Times right up for a second, they refer to a group called Kataib Hezbollah, which is a regional militia that is linked to Iran. And they announced that they are suspending their military operations in Iraq, where they operate. So that, at least according to the Times, seems like they're under some pressure from Iran, from Iraq, to back off, to cool out. Some in the Pentagon say that that's the group that was responsible for this attack. John Kirby, who's a spokesperson for the National Security Council, says 
maybe, but the umbrella group, Islamic resistance in Iraq, was probably the figurehead. Kataib Hezbollah could be part of it, but they're not 100% behind it, which makes this more complicated. That means there's a larger group that may have picked just this one militia to do this one attack, but who else might be involved in this? How much more might be going on? That's the challenge. And that's also just been the challenge in fighting Islamic extremism, pseudo-Islamic extremism since the beginning, or for decades and decades, is that a lot of these organizations are very decentralized. Hamas is very decentralized. If you talk to people who know the organization, they'll tell you, often one hand doesn't know what the other's doing. It's not like there is one person at the very top who dictates everything to everyone. Even when the Israeli military began to move in after the attack on October 7th, a lot of that whole situation was frustrated by the fact that it wasn't so centralized that they could find the ringleader and break the plot. It doesn't quite work that way. And a number of the people who are calling the shots for Hamas aren't even in the region. They're not even in Gaza. They're in other places like Qatar and Egypt and elsewhere. They're not even there. So it's hard to catch them because who do you catch? How do you know you've caught the right person? It's it very complicated. Where does this group come from? The Islamic resistance in Iraq. It emerged in response to military presence from other countries, particularly after the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003. This collective group of pro-Tehran, pro-Iran, Iraqi militias. So these are militias in Iraq that supported Iran and then evolved to become kind of this larger catch-all for militias that Iran supports outside of Iraq. Iraq included, but also Syria, Lebanon, beyond. So now it's not one group, it's kind of a, a catch-all group. Very anti-US, very intense military campaigns, including a recent two-day drone operation targeting American forces at an Iraqi airbase. So, that's how they operate. They keep their identity secret, they're a catch-all group, and they kind of work together toward their aims. Well, what are their aims? They've been attacking more against the U.S. in response to the war in Israel. America has been supporting Israel in its conflict with Hamas, and that has drawn attacks from anti-Israel groups like this one. So this is very much connected to what happened with the war in Israel. But this is the first time since that war started that these attacks have actually killed service members. That's why the concern of an escalation is so sharp. That is why you had Iranian officials saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's not treat this as a prelude to war. Here's the problem. It still could be. Like what happens and wars start for reasons that are unexpected and, and unplanned and, you know, the Archduke gets assassinated in Sarajevo and all of a sudden we're in World War I, right? That's why it is in Iran's interest for it's just survival to be clear about not wanting the U.S. to come run over, Iran, run over to Iran and start a war. However, we know that Iran supports these militias. They arm them, they fund them, they train them. It's one of the things that Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has been very upset about for quite some time, before this attack as well, that the international community wants Iran 
to be brought to account, that he wants more support for Israel in the form of bringing these various groups to heel and making them back off in terms of their various activities in the region. So this, in a way, bolsters one of the things that Netanyahu has been saying for a while. It's hard to pin perfectly where the money goes. This is also one of the things that Nikki Haley said in some of her campaign stops about if she was president, she would not be sending as much money overseas because you can't really track it because it's hard to know where the money goes and who it's funding. It's, I mean, they're not keeping receipts on all this money, at least not that we have found. But it's one of those things that kind of bolsters the argument for a different kind of response. And again, the options are not that many. Targeted strikes, maybe targeted assassinations outside Iranian territory. This piece from the conversation notes that Qasem Soleimani, who was the general of the Quds Force, which is one of the elite forces in Iran, they didn't kill him in Iran. They assassinated him outside of Iran. So it's going to be touchy. It's going to be very tense for a little while. By some reports, some of the strikes may have begun or certain airstrikes may have begun. Those are very preliminary. But keep your eyes open for very small reports that have larger impacts. It's not going to be like the president goes on TV, at least I hope it's not, Lord Jesus, where he goes on TV and says, today American forces have landed in Iran. The odds of that are very low because that would immediately create another theater of war in Israel, and God forbid that it should spill even further, and all of our diplomatic work in places like the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and Egypt, which Secretary of State Antony Blinken is part of, that would vaporize, and it would immediately become a shooting war. That would be a terrible thing right now, especially with everything else we've got going on. So I would not expect that. I would expect some kind of very intense response, but I don't think we have to worry so much about boots on the ground. My thoughts right now are more with the families of those fallen service members. I'm much more concerned with that right now. And I think that's kind of the place to, to keep our eyes open. That's the place that I think we should be watching. But we'll see. I don't think it's going to get to that point. At least I hope not. Please don't let it get to that point. Please. Going to take another quick break. When we come back, I do want to update you on a decision that I made. Remember when I was telling you that I was debating what to do about my profile on the social network formerly known as X? Well, I've given it a lot of thought, and several of you have shared your thoughts with me. So I want to tell you where that's going to go. I think I feel comfortable with my decision. <laughs> I think so. I certainly hope so. But based on another story that broke today, uh, I think my decision is pretty clear. So I'll tell you what I decided, and I'll explain to you today's development that sort of cemented the decision for me. And yes, we are going to talk about Groundhog Day. I do want to talk about Groundhog Day. I don't even know if you even know which Groundhog made the prediction today. Have you seen him? Do you know his name? Do you know the names of the groundhogs? Yes, indeed, there's more than one who make these predictions. I'm going to tell you about the groundhogs you may not have heard of. They were all busy working today. Phil ain't the only one on the job. Also, if you've never actually seen that ceremony, you need to see it. It's a goofy bit of silly for your Friday 
that unless you've actually watched it and seen the crowd and the pomp and this pageantry and the, it, it's worth seeing. We will educate you about the ways of the groundhog in a little bit. Welcome back. Let me give you a quick update on this program, on where you can find the program. Some of you may recall that a week ago today, I guess it was, a week ago today, I came to you and laid out my dilemma in terms of how I and this program represent ourselves on social media. At the end of last year, I felt like the presence that I've had on what was known as Twitter, what is now called X, had kind of run its course. Reason being Elon Musk. He welcomed Donald Trump back onto the platform after he used it to basically weaponize the American people against one another. He allowed Alex Jones back on the platform after he used misinformation and conspiracy theories to defame the families of children who had been massacred in an elementary school. Defamation that he ended up paying an enormous punitive penalty for, ordered by the courts. Andrew Tate, who is the king of all chauvinists online, flourishes on X. Tucker Carlson has moved to X and is building his business empire there after Fox News dropped him very quickly for his white nationalist rhetoric. And it just kind of became clear to me that there's a lot of awful people on X that I want absolutely nothing to do with. And so at the end of last year, I posted this on my profile, basically telling people, thank you for following me here, and I appreciate you being here, but this is it, I am leaving, and we are done here, so go follow me in all the other places where I can be followed. And that was it. That kind of was enough for me. The problem with that is that Twitter had always been one of my most active forms of engagement. Facebook has always been good for deeper engagement, people kind of having conversations with one another on social media. YouTube is a space that's growing and I'm focusing hard on YouTube, but my Twitter following is something I built over a number of years and have a number of people who are elected leaders and celebrities and and movers and shakers who follow me there. And so trying to build a new show without the benefit of being on X or being active on X was really hurting. Now that's just the dollars and cents of it. And I thought, well, that's kind of a crappy reason to go back on a moral decision. So I went to you and I asked you, what do you think about this? Does this matter to you, first of all? And if it does, how do you view this? I think a lot of people who responded and I won't share some of the emails that I got, but a lot of people who responded to this online were very thoughtful about it, and I really appreciate your thoughtfulness on it. I appreciate your willingness to, to help me walk through this situation and to think about it in an intelligent way. The net effect of this is that you are much less worried about this than I am. The net effect of this is that you viewed the work that I'm doing as important enough to be purveyed wherever I can get it elevated. And that as much as we hate some of the drama and the insanity 
and the stupidity that goes on on social media that this work that we're trying to do is important enough to be in that space too. It also was very powerful to me, and Sarah, I think you're the one who made this comment about being able to shine in a dark space. And X feels like a very dark space. But if there's anywhere that this kind of work could stand out, it's there and in places like that. My website is based on Substack. Substack is going through a controversy, just went through a controversy about monetizing Nazi and white nationalist content, where its co-founder, Hamish McKenzie, said that they didn't want to deplatform all of it because that amounts to censorship and censorship doesn't solve anything. I think that's bull. I think you can make a line where you say, I want all kinds of robust points of view, but we already beat you in a war, so I don't see why you deserve to be online with me. So I think that that is real weak tea, but that's the argument he's made. Also, I have moved my podcast hosting over to Spotify, and Spotify just re-upped Joe Rogan. He just got a new Spotify deal that, according to the Wall Street Journal, is going to be worth up to $250 million. And here's the other thing. You know that Joe Rogan has been in trouble for elevating all kinds of goofy conspiracy theories and his conversation with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. probably helped keep him viable as a candidate with even a little bit of support in the polls. But the larger issue with this, as the Wall Street Journal reported, is that unlike in the past, under the new licensing agreement, Spotify is going to sell ads for and distribute his show, The Joe Rogan Experience, beyond Spotify. Previously, you could only hear Joe Rogan's podcast on Spotify. It was exclusive. The new deal breaks that exclusivity. You'll be able to hear it across different platforms, including, and this is about to make my life suck harder, or maybe get better because the market will grow, as a video podcast on YouTube. Now, you can put video podcasts on Spotify as well. I have not uploaded this show as a podcast to Spotify, though maybe I should, is video. But now, the entire episodes of the Joe Rogan Experience are going to be on YouTube as well. Does that mean that I take down my YouTube channel? Does that mean that I keep doing my YouTube channel because more people might end up going to YouTube for video podcasts? This was rapidly becoming a game of media whack-a-mole that is dizzying. And I think at a certain point, the virtue signal just doesn't work. It's not effective in terms of building something that is good, and it just seeds the ground to the worst people in the world. It makes it very easy for good people to be scared off by the vitriol and vituperativeness of the worst people around. And I don't like feeling that way. I don't like feeling like I'm at the mercy of <laughs> Nazis or at the mercy of Tucker Carlson, or at the mercy of Joe Rogan, who, let's be clear, everything Joe Rogan does isn't terrible. Some of his interviews are quite good, but he doesn't know what he's doing. So do I cede ground to people who don't quite know what they're doing? He knows what he's doing much more now, but, you know, I put a commentary on about Shannon Sharp and his interview of Cat Williams, and that there was some room for improvement in what he did. 
I'm not mad at Shannon Sharp. I just thought there was room to grow if you're going to have a guest who starts saying things that are that controversial and you don't even ask, how do you know these things? That's a problem. But if I'm not in that space, how do I say that? How do I make that pushback? On top of that, Spotify published a piece on its PR site with Joe Rogan looking dapper in a shirt and tie, which he never wears on his show, talking about the multi-year Spotify partnership, which they announced today. Talk to him. How do you get it all done? What is in your podcasting playlist? What do you play in the green room? And he talks about what he's done and how he's done it, how much he's learned, read articles and books, watch documentaries for the show. And he said in part, quote, I've always feel like in starting this podcast, I stumbled into this fantastic accidental education just by being interested in talking to people and being fortunate enough that people want to listen, unquote. Yeah, I get that. And I think that people should be able to have these conversations. I just have a problem with people being elevated for having these conversations and not being 100% allegiant to the truth. That I have a problem with. And if that guy gets to do it, I get to do it. And one of these days, I believe that as audiences move, they're going to look for this kind of work. They're going to look for the kind of work that you are supporting right now. And they're going to wonder why they didn't see it until just now. And my goal is to be there when they show up so that they can come right into this space and join all of you. And you'll be there to welcome them and be like, where you been? We knew about this back in 24. Like, wh wh what took you so long? We knew about this before the Super Bowl. Before, <laughs> we knew about this before Taylor kissed Travis on the 50-yard line at the Super Bowl in Vegas. Where have you been? <laughs> That's the goal anyway. So I am going to revive uh reactive what's the word i'm going to uh de-idle what's the opposite of to idle give me come on thesaurus give me a good word uh, i'm going to let's see idle i see it antonyms for idle not for the adjective for the verb come on thesaurus.com you know that it's a verb i'm going to uh I'm going to restart on, on X. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm going to restart that profile. I'm going to post this on there to let people know why I'm going back on my decision. And also so that if people react, maybe it's reactivate. Reinst Let's see. Philip says reinstate. Maybe. Joseph says reanimate my zombie profile. <laughs> maybe that's what it is to reanimate it somehow. Uh, 10 under rekindle. Maybe. Possibly. Uh, I'm going to, maybe, one of those, one of those. But I will post a video, a version of this that I'm telling you right now to let people know, oh, Drew, I like your answer. Drew, hello. I don't think you've commented on our show yet, but welcome. I like this. Drew says, thaw from its carbonite prison. Oh, my God. Maybe I can, oh, I wonder if I can make a picture of myself like encased in carbonite like Han Solo. That would be really fun. But I will post a video explaining to people why I'm reversing my decision. And also, so if people disagree with it, they can speak up because I think that's fair game. There may be people who feel like, oh, great, you did it when it was convenient. And then when it didn't work for business purposes, all of a sudden your morals change. Got it. Right. Whatever. I get that. I totally understand that. And I think people should be able to say that. I want to be clear, though. I still have no tolerance for assholes. 
If you comment on YouTube, if you comment on Facebook, if you comment on Twitch and I see you being a prick, I will ban you. Period. Full stop. This is not a space for people who want to snipe at one another and insult one another and be nasty to one another. I do not roll that way. I won't roll that way on Twitter. I never have. I never will. Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, any space that I'm in, we will be civil to one another. Doesn't mean you can't disagree. And some of you have had very thoughtful disagreements in the chat. And they're great. I'm for that. I will never be for disrespect. I will never be for rudeness. I will never suffer assholes gladly. Do not show up. If you want to be on X or any social network and be part of that space, go be part of that space. But go be part of that space. Don't come near me. I will embarrass your ass and I will throw you out. That will always be my rule. And as long as I can have that latitude to have that kind of space, then I think we'll be okay. And I think this will all work itself out and I think we'll all be, we'll all be just fine. What I'm not planning on doing is doing the the kind of paying for the premium membership. I don't think I'm gonna do the whole blue check mark. And Tenanda, I see you just commented on YouTube. I've stuck around Twitter, but it really has become a cesspool because the blue check brigade comments are prioritized and they are 100% zero value added. I hear you on that. I don't think I'm gonna do the blue check mark. It does make a difference in terms of being seen. And I think that at a certain point, it might make sense just to be surfaced. I don't know how Elon Musk and Linda Yaccarino, the CEO of X, are going to force the algorithm to mathematically disadvantage profiles like mine. It's nice that when the stream goes online, I get a burst of viewers from X because people just click on it opportunistically. But then they kind of click away because they're like, what is this? Okay, not interested, boop, and they move on. But Step one is to go back and to reactivate and to try to more loudly carve out this space so that people understand like everyone on X is not an asshole. <laughs> Some of us are really very nice and we want to make space for people who just want to connect and who don't want to be mad all the time. If we can do that, then I think we stand a chance, more than a chance. And that's where we're going to go. So Soapbox over. This is me stepping down off of the soapbox. And this is the way that we're going to go going forward. I appreciate those of you who let me rant about this. Uh, for those of you who are watching on X, remember that you can go over to YouTube at Nightlight Joshua and be part of the chat over there. But I will be as active as I can and we'll, uh, we'll keep working on it. We'll keep building it up. I do want to get to a few other things before I let you go this weekend. There are, there's a bunch of stories on that are coming out of Washington that I'm going to get to, but I think I'm going to save my piece on bipartisanship for next week, just because I want to let it continue to build and I want to keep working on it a little bit more in light of a few other stories that are just coming out. There's one in particular that I would like to share. Uh, actually two, give me one second. I'm going to pull up one and then I'm going to, oh, how funny. We were just talking about you. So remember I mentioned Andrew Tate, he had been, uh, prosecuted over accusations of sex trafficking. According to the AP, he just lost his appeal to make the courts back off of him. And this was on Tuesday. A court in Romania rejected an appeal by him to ease judicial control measures that were imposed 
as the case continues. He and his brother are in trouble for accusations of sex trafficking. He's on X right now with 8.7 million followers. So yeah, I'm not a fan of that. The other story that I wanted to mention, which just moved today. Let me see if I can bring it back up. Give me just one second. That there were some delays in terms of the prosecutions of Donald Trump. You may remember that there was a trial date set over the charges against Donald Trump for plotting to overturn the 2020 election. This is part of that whole Supreme Court issue of whether the president is immune from criminal prosecution on that matter. Well, according to the AP, the judge in that case vacated the trial date. It's supposed to be on March 4th. She has since vacated that and did not set a new date. This was probably to be expected. It's not a shock that that was pushed back because there's still this legal question, which by the way, the Supreme Court is going to hear that argument next Thursday. So I'm going to be watching that. I'll keep an eye on that. It might change the airtime of the show, maybe, but I'm going to let you know as quickly as I can when I'm going to be able to start out. I don't think it's going to delay the show because the Supreme Court is going to hear it at 10 a.m. Eastern. The whole thing's going to take an hour and a half. So by the time that's over, I should have more than enough time to, to pull the show together. It'll be really, really busy, but I will definitely pull the show together by then. That's one piece of it. The other thing is that the verdict in the fraud case in New York, the big fraud case, not the E. Jean Carroll one, but the one where Donald Trump was going back and forth with the judge, Arthur and Goran, and insulted the clerk and all that. The judge has said that he is going to push back his verdict on that. We had been expecting it like two days ago. And so that was the judge's own deadline. He himself pushed that back. That's been pushed back again. We don't know when that's going to be. So we will see when that comes around. So a lot of these legal developments, just because there's this kind of universe of developments here, are also, there's this, the timeline is moving. Also, but the big one that you're probably going to hear more about, the case in Georgia, which has to do with election interference, that phone call where he told Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, I just need you to find some votes. There's been controversy over the prosecutor, Fonnie Willis, who is the Fulton County District Attorney, Atlanta is Fulton County, and accusations of a relationship with Nathan Wade, one of the colleagues, one of her colleagues, the special prosecutor, that the two of them had been in a relationship. Well, today, she acknowledged it. She admitted the relationship happened, called it a personal relationship, but she is arguing that it is not reason enough to disqualify her from that case. Attorneys for the former president had been pushing hard to basically destroy the entire prosecution on the basis of what they claimed was an improper personal relationship that presented a conflict of interest. Mr. Wade had been in the middle of a divorce. That divorce got finalized this week, so he moved it forward much more quickly. And today, Fannie Willis admitted that the two of them had a personal relationship but says that it was not an impediment to the prosecution, it did not create a conflict of interest, and there was no financial benefit between the two of them. There was no, nothing going on, I almost said under the table, oh my God. But there's nothing going on improperly that would affect the prosecution there. So 
lots of moving parts with all of these prosecutions. Every single piece of these is going to bear on the election in some way, but the fact that they're taking a while is going to push all of this closer to Super Tuesday, which I think is going to change the way that Nikki Haley affects her campaign, affects her campaign, affects with an E, and makes her case to Trump voters. Because unless and until something happens in the courts that shakes all of this, I don't see why the poll numbers would change, the fundraising would change, the influence would change. That is why I think all of these little pieces are important. And there are lots and lots of bits and pieces of this. So I don't want to dwell on it. I just wanted to give the update and put it all in some context. But I'm not going to do it as a slow drip over the next few days. Once there's a big ruling, a big move, I'll try to wrap it all up. I'll give you the little bits and pieces as we go. But never a dull moment. Never, ever, ever a dull moment. Before we go, I would like to talk a bit about the groundhog. I find this fascinating. I wish I had a brilliant take on Groundhog Day. I don't. It's amazing. It is one of those things that I just am learning about myself. Don't know if you heard, but uh, spring is coming. Did you know spring comes after winter? It does, and it will. Groundhog Day is today. Punxsutawney Phil saw his shadow, and so we are going to get out of winter and, and have spring, and, and life is going to go on, and, and it's going to be a beautiful... Excuse me. He did not see his shadow. I beg your pardon. He did not see his shadow, which means spring will come a little bit early. Uh, first of all, he's usually wrong. I don't know if you're aware of this. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has a chart of how well the groundhog does at predicting the onset of spring. He doesn't do very well. If you look over the last 10 years or so, Punxsutawney Phil was only correct in 2014, 16, and 20. Every other year he's been wrong. So in the past 10 years, he's only been right 30% of the time. Generally, he sees a shadow, predicts more winter, generally. So he rarely has good news in the first place. Sometimes he will not see a shadow, and that means an early spring. And then there were 10 years since the predictions began in 1887 where there was no recorded prediction. I think this is mostly just cute and just silly. And I... Why not? I mean, life is just a little nuts and a little tense right now. So if Punxsutawney Phil can tell us we're going to have an early spring, I think it's cute, except for the fact that spring is going to get longer anyway because the earth is getting hotter. So if we can just have a little bit of levity about the warmth, it will ease my soul. It will make me feel just a little bit better. It's a beautiful sunny day now in Vegas. It's gotten a little colder because right now it's in the 50s, had been in the 60s. We need it in the 70s. I paid for warmth. But it was a very cute little ceremony. I'm going to show you how the ceremony went in just a minute. The video is adorable, and I'd never actually watched what happens other than the shot where they hold up the groundhog like Rafiki holding Simba on Pride Rock as the, the elephants and the zebras bow at the beginning of The Lion King. And I think it's much funnier if you watch it when he holds up the groundhog, if in your mind you hear, it's the circle of life. If, if that is your backstory of just the, the elephants as they're trumpeting and the and the zebras, when you see the crowd cheer for him and like the, the meerkats, will we find our place? That makes it much more entertaining for me with these white guys in top hats with music from The Lion King because it couldn't get any sillier. But why Groundhog Day? 
I did not know this history until I looked for it. It comes from a Christian tradition that got evolved by German immigrants to the United States. I'd never heard this before. Here's the organization that does this. It's groundhog.org, of course. And it comes from a Christian holiday that we don't really observe anymore called Candlemas Day, commonly associated with the current celebration. Started in Christianity as the day on February 2nd, when Christians would take their candles to the church to have them blessed, to bring blessings to their household for the rest of winter. Time rolled on, it evolved, and there's an English folk song that explains the roots of what we saw today. It says, If Candlemas be fair and bright, come winter, have another flight. If Candlemas brings clouds and rain, go winter and come not again. That's how, apparently, they interpreted that for most of Europe. There's no mention of a groundhog, but when the tradition got to Germany, they added an animal to the tradition, but it wasn't a groundhog. It was a hedgehog. And according to German tradition, if the hedgehog saw his shadow on Candlemas Day, there would be a second winter, six more weeks of bad weather. And the opposite, if he didn't, then there'd be an early spring. German settlers come to the United States, many of whom settled in and around the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania and as far as the Allegheny River Valley, and they brought their traditions with them. But there weren't hedgehogs here, so they used groundhogs, which is a similar hibernating animal, and that's how we got to Punxsutawney Phil. By the way, if you're wondering where the hell is Punxsutawney, it's right around here. It is northeast of Pittsburgh. Here's Cleveland. Over here is the Ohio River. Down here, Pittsburgh. And then northeast of Pittsburgh is Punxsutawney, if you ever want to plan a vacation. So that's where it came from, this tradition. By the way, Punxsutawney Phil's not the only guy doing this. Have you heard of Buckeye Chuck? Because Buckeye Chuck had something to say today, too. Buckeye Chuck does his thing in Marion, Ohio, on February 2nd, on Candlemas, Groundhog Day. And fortunately, because just the political controversy of a discrepancy alone would be enough to rock the American electorate, but fortunately... In the popular Groundhog Swing State of Ohio, Buckeye Chuck concurred that we would have an early spring. So, thankfully, that will not be another part of our political controversies that we have to deal with for the year to come. But even beyond that, did you know that there is yet another Groundhog who makes predictions? Have you heard of General Beauregard Lee? Because General Beauregard Lee also has something to say about the pace of the spring and the winter. Because today in Georgia, another groundhog by the name of General Beauregard Lee in Jackson, Georgia, made his prediction. And sure enough, General Lee <laughs> did not see his shadow either. And so, y'all, this is y'all. <laughs> I love America so much. This is such a wonderful country. What is this? A, if the Europeans can have Krampus, we can have groundhogs. Damn it. So General Beauregard Lee concurred and said, I believe we're going to have an early spring. I say, I say, I say. So weather's going to be lovely, thanks to these people. Or these groundhogs, I guess. Groundhogs are people too, I guess. 
But did you also know that there's a groundhog in New York? Not to be outdone, Staten Island Chuck. Yes, because when you're from Staten Island, you've got to do something. Staten Island Chuck also did not see his shadow. So we have four-way consensus. It's amazing. Four-way consensus. Spring is sprung, baby. It's going to be a beautiful thing. I wouldn't worry. Put on your deck shoes, your flip-flops, your sun hat. Just go out in a Speedo today. Might as well get started. Spring is here. But one of the great moments in Groundhog history happened to New York's former mayor, Bill de Blasio. New Yorkers may remember 10 years ago, he was holding Staten Island Chuck at an event and dropped him and let him slip out. Now, the groundhog in New York is obviously ornery. This particular year, there was actually a female groundhog because the last time they had a male groundhog, he started to nibble through the glove of uh, former mayor Michael Bloomberg. So they decided to pick somebody else. But he finally has talked about that what happened 10 years ago. Now, Bill de Blasio had gotten in trouble for some other things on the campaign trail, like you know the way that you eat a pizza with your hands instead of like a knife and fork and what you put on your bagel, like that's very important to New Yorkers. So this is another one of those things where they were like, oh my God, what is wrong with this guy? But he did acknowledge that when they got to the Staten Island Zoo, his motor skills were not the best. In an interview with New York Magazine, he said, I put on these gloves and they're like, here's a groundhog. I'm like, what the f- Yeah. You don't spring that on the mayor, I think. You tell him about that. You warn him. He said they didn't. He asked for a little more coaching to go with it and asked, why would you want an elected official to hold a groundhog? Said that he 100% regrets holding the animal, which squirmed out of his hands. A few months later in September, the New York Post broke the news that Staten Island Chuck had died and the zoo tried to cover it up, and the scandal deepened when they revealed that the Staten Island Chuck was actually a female stand-in. The real Chuck was swapped out after he tried to bite into Mayor Michael Bloomberg's gloves at the 2009 Groundhog Day event. New York, why must you always be so extra? New York. Goodness gracious. I actually kind of love these traditions. I really do. I think they're cute. I think they're funny. I think they're silly. And I think we need a little cute, funny, silly just to keep things normal <laughs> so that we can breathe, at, particularly at the end of the week. Let me look at some of your comments in the chat. Holly wrote, Law Jesus, it was almost 80 degrees here two days ago. Not ready for triple digits yet. I am not ready for it either. For real. Nora writes, I never thought to look at a, se- look at a secular source for the history. The day is technically the presentation of Jesus in the temple. The candles having been made during the winter were brought so that Catholics could take the light of Christ to the world. I did not, uh, hence the term mass. I did not know that. I actually did not know that. Um, Tenunda writes, Staten Island Chuck sounds like what the police find after a mob hit. Mm-hmm. My goodness. And having lived in New York, I'm like, this is such a New York thing. This is such a New York thing. And now, if I may, I would like to show you what happened when the original, the real groundhog, thank you very much, not always imitate us, Beauregard leave, stay in the South, you lost a war. When the original groundhog saw his shadow this morning to free us from the clutches of winter, if you've never actually seen this ceremony with the crowds outside and the pomp and the ceremony and the pageantry, it is, 
It is worth seeing. Let me show you what happened. There we go. All right. Are you ready? It's a tradition. Before we get Phil out, we get him fired up by chanting, Phil, 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 Phil. You can see the capacity crowd on its feet there, ready for Punxsutawney Phil to make his annual meteorological tradition. The officials in the town of Punxsutawney are making their way over to the door. You can see the official key and lock are being opened up with the greatest of care. The crowd is on its feet, huddled together for warmth, but also unable to contain the heat of their excitement. And there he is, ladies and gentlemen, as they reach deep into the tree stump. There at Gobbler's Knob, the home of Punxsutawney Phil, waiting all year long for his moment in the sunshine to bring the sunshine to the people of western Pennsylvania. I think the moment is about to arrive, ladies and gentlemen. They're reaching deep into the burrow. He it's seems nervous. Phil! There he is. The rodent of the hour, ready to free us all from the clutches of winter. You can note the capacity crowd there. Gentlemen, gather round. And the gentlemen of the town are gathered round with the top hats that indicate that they are indeed the wisest and most responsible people in the town of Punxsutawney. It is a time-honored symbol of authority and leadership that has come down through the ages. And now the moment arrives. Let's watch. Okay, we have a decision. I'm being told. I'm told that they have picked a scroll. A prediction has been listen. made, Mr. President. Now on this February 2nd, Punxsutawney Phil, the seer of seers, prognosticator of all prognosticators, was awakened from his wintry nap at dawn on Gobbler's Knob. Phil looked to the skies and then, speaking in groundhog ease, directed the president to the proper scroll, which reads, Another winter's slumbered pause so I could meet the crowd. Hard to sleep anyway when the party's this loud. I envy your energy. I envy the fun. I envy all of you and your opposable thumbs. But it's not what I feel, it's what I see and what you hear. So gather round and let me be clear. Atmosphere is a wonderful thing. And we can create our own and the weather it brings. It brings hope for the future and so much more. Maybe some Punxsutawney Phil write-in votes in 2024. But what this weather did not provide is a shadow or reason to hide. Glad tidings on this Groundhog Day. An early spring is on the way. And there you have it, the latest development from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Good news for those of you weather watchers all across the country. One of the most accurate 
and reliable meteorological sources in our country. Punxsutawney Phil officially declares that winter will be ending soon and we will be on our way into spring. No word so far on whether or not his political career will indeed be taking off, although there was that reference to write-in votes. We will see whether or not that bears out. And also interested to know whether or not there are any of you in the audience who do speak groundhogies, but as far as we know, we have never yet heard Punxsutawney Phil speak in his native tongue. Not sure if this is a form of of cultural understanding that needs to be bridged between us in the years to come. But there you have it. You heard it here first. Punxsutawney Phil has saved us from the clutches of winter. Spring is indeed on the way. On the opinion of this reporter, it's one of the most august days in a long and arduous campaign season. I'm sure Punxsutawney Phil is a candidate we can all proudly get behind. That was fun. That was enjoyable. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely insane. I'd never actually watched the ceremony before. But, oh, wait a minute. A possum? One of our viewers on YouTube, there's also Sand Mountain Sam in Northeast Alabama, who's a possum? I don't know if I need to hear from a possum. I don't know if I need weather advice from a possum. Stick to groundhogs, all right? Some things are appropriate. Some things are inappropriate. Groundhogs are are an appropriate, time-honored source of meteorological information. Groundhogs, fine. Possums, I don't know. And Joseph writes, Phil's sitting there like, I didn't write any of this. Uh, yeah, but, well, but how can he write it? You heard what the man said. He ain't got no thumbs. I think that's really the reason why we have to be able to have these experiences. It's our way of connecting worlds that couldn't otherwise connect. And really, what's better than that? I appreciate you spending time with me this week and letting me end on a very, very silly note. I will reactivate X very soon. In the meantime, please tell your friends to go to nightlightjoshua.com. Subscribe to the podcast. If you do subscribe on your podcast app or on YouTube, please write a review so that more people can find the program and we can keep the community of this going and growing. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you for making time for me. Enjoy your weekend. I will see you on Wednesday. And as always, my friends, keep on shining because someone, somewhere, needs your light right now.